Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Mia Wang and Oren Falkowitz on the pod. Mia is the M&A and Strategy Director at Cloudflare, and Oren was the co-founder and CEO of Area One Security, which was acquired by Cloudflare on April 1st of 2022. I can't believe it's already been a year. It feels like it was very recently, but it's crazy how quickly things move. But in this episode, we'll demystify the M&A process for founders using the real life example of Cloudflare and Area One. So I think to start things off, Mia, let's start with your story. Just, you know, how'd you end up in your role at Cloudflare? Thanks for having us on. I'll keep my, my background short because I think Oren has the, the much more interesting story. Um, I had a sort of strange path into corporate development originally had the intention of going down the, the route actually Oren did or, or uh, did my undergrad and my master's in cybersecurity. And you and I had actually met, met in college back in the day. And I worked in space for a bit, realized this was not necessarily for me, kind of being, being super technical, being a security engineer. I was like, I'm mediocre on a good day. And so I then spent a number of years in financial services, both on the investment banking side, as well as the investing side before coming to Cloudflare. I think for me, it was it's important to sort of get back closer to security and to just a sort of technically ambitious company in a capacity where I think as a company where Cloudflare's been public for just a couple of years, we haven't done a lot of acquisitions. So really having a chance to kind of help the organization learn how to do M&A and, and build that function up and get to spend still a lot of my time with, with great founders and investors like, like the two of you. The fun part about these podcasts is you learn something new. So I didn't actually know, like I'd be in business classes and see you there. And I didn't know that you were actually thinking about uh, security. So that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we met at Craig Mellon. I ended up loving it there so much that I stuck around for an extra year and did a master's (laughs) in security after after you had left. Amazing. Oren, let's go with your background. You've done quite a lot of things in your career at various organizations. So, you know, how'd you get to <laughs> Area One Security, but also, you know, maybe even before that with some of the three-letter government agencies that you've been involved with and so on and so forth? Thanks for having me. Well, I started my career at the National Security Agency on February 6, 2006, and I joined there to be a ballistic missile forecasting analyst. And so my job at the time was to predict and when other countries were going to launch missiles. Now, these are test missiles. They're not like ones in war. Sometimes people are confused by that. And our purpose was to collect the telemetry off those missiles, analyze the telemetry and understand like how good were they, how far along was it, what kind of countermeasures were needed, you know, and so forth. And that was super fun, right? That was a super fun thing to do. I think the first day I showed up, North Korea had launched its Taepodong 2 missile, which of course, like if you're not a missile nerd like I am, there's a big thing between like an intercontinental ballistic missile and ICBM or a space launch vehicle, like they're basically the same thing, but it's like, what are you trying to do with it? And so, you know, one country saying it's a space launch vehicle, we want to launch satellites. The other one's like, you're trying to launch nukes at us. And so it was like kind of exciting first day. But, you know, at some point I got recruited to go work in the computer hacking team, which in those days was called tailored access operations. Ended my career as part of the computer science research team and spent a little time at US Cyber Command before starting my first company in Boston, which was a database company based on open source project that we had made at NSA called Apache Accumulo, which was released to the Apache Software Foundation. And it was at that time when an investor at Charles River Ventures said, hey, why don't you come take a look at this cybersecurity company called Cyber Reason and let me know what you think. 
And, you know, I think the great thing about working at a place like NSA is you understand problems really well, but you don't understand anything about markets or like what it is to build a company or, or anything along those lines. So I just remember thinking like, this is so kind of like off, right? Because we spent almost all our time sending pornography to people whose computers we wanted to get into and they would click at it at a really, you know, exorbitant rate. And I just kind of remarked to him like, really the problem you should be solving is phishing, and he kind of looked at me, he's like, that's a really dumb problem to solve. And I thought, <laughs> wow, like we're going to create a company around this. And so that's what we did. And that's so Area 1, you know, is designed to protect people from phishing. It's still the case that 9 in 10 cyber attacks, when you look at the ones that have damages, you know, you find a person like you, me, or Mia who have clicked on something or downloaded something and have been duped into these phishing attacks. One quick question on the ballistic missile part is, so yeah. when North, North Korea has, like, when we do hear that news, are they actually launching, like, the missiles that can travel across the world? Or is it, like, are they launching, like, basically things into space, essentially? Yeah, so the ballistic trajectory, it's like an arc, right? And so typically when you're launching something that's intercontinental or long range or medium range, you're just launching it at a higher apogee, right? So that you can just determine, you know, what, what's going on. You're not going the full distance. They're just kind of going up. Okay, okay. Got it. But you study the angle basically that it's launching at and then you can kind of figure out what the intent is or... Yeah, you're studying the telemetry, right? Which is telling you, like, when does the first stage kick off? When does this happen? What happens here? If you've watched the SpaceX launches, there are lots of explosions. So you're just trying to determine, hey, like, why did it explode? At what point? How far away are they? And so forth, make an assessment about it. It's a lot about that. I have a lot of really good missile stories for another time. We could do a whole thing about it. But there's actually some really fascinating things about it. But, you know, like in all things, because I'm sure we'll get to this about data, it's really hard to hide your intentions with data. And so like the Russians have this saying, I, I used to know the Russian, but I've forgotten it in the last 15 years, but it's basically telemetry doesn't lie, right? And so, you know, we see in a lot of the work we do in cybersecurity and so forth, like when you have a large network like Cloudflare has, or you're, you know, observing a lot of data, it's really hard to obfuscate what it is you're trying to do. It's just like, how do you put the puzzle pieces together? And so countries, while they don't really want you to know what's going on, it's almost impossible for them to do any of these activities without launching some sort of telemetry out there. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's dive into the software part of the podcast now. So Mia, I think we want to demystify the M&A process, right? So I think first, why don't we start with how does the M&A process even start? Like, do you have a thesis that you formed in a certain area or a product gap that you identify ahead of time? Or can it simply start from, hey, I just met a super cool, interesting company. And now that gets the mind spinning about what could potentially happen. Like, just walk us through what happens from the beginning. In general, different acquires will, will have sort of different ways of approaching M&A. The way we usually think about it at Cloudflare is it's kind of a mix of, of everything you're describing. There have been companies we've acquired where Literally, the way it started was, you know, someone on our product team pinged me because they saw a launch hacker news post or saw a blog post on Twitter and just said to me, oh, this looks interesting. Like, can we go learn more? And we'll go talk to the company. And, you know, they're building something that has been on our roadmap or something we've wanted to build. Or is it just a team that was like a really great fit for Cloudflare? And then there's other cases where it's a lot more structured of, we know we have this specific product gap or the specific goal that we want to solve for the company and we'll run a sort of more structured landscaping effort, understand the market, understand the different players, the big ones all the way down to the smaller earlier stage ones, and then maybe systematically try to meet with a handful of them and, and sort of narrow it down. Or and I had met a bunch of years ago. I think you might have actually introduced us. 
or I would catch up every so often. And then at one point we caught up, this would have been fall of 2021, I think. And the, the sort of stars aligned, I think it felt like maybe the right time for them. I'll let Oren speak to that, but then it also felt like the right time for us. But the reason I say it was something in, in the middle is that I think as a company, we always thought about actually doing something around email security, around phishing. We already did a lot around protecting your public facing web applications and started doing a lot more on corporate IT and security. It just sort of felt like a no brainer to have email as, as a company. Yeah, everyone talks about zero trust and SASE and we all have slightly different definitions of what all that means, but traditionally email isn't included in that, which to me still doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Like it's such a ubiquitous threat surface. It's something everyone uses, everyone from the smallest business in the world using Cloudflare to, to our largest customers. And so it was something that was always in the, the back of our minds. Actually, funny enough, so our CEO, Matthew, our CTO, and our head of merging tech innovation, so the sponsor of the Area 1 acquisition, they all actually, prior to Cloudflare, have spent time around email security, whether it was related to phishing or spam. And so I think in some ways, there was a hunch because of that experience, but there are also a lot of a lot of battle scars they had trying to solve those problems in the past. So I think we were cautious about maybe not diving into that problem until we felt like we had a really solid approach. And so when we met Area One, it just sort of felt like the sort of stars aligned. Like there was this interest on our end for a long time of doing something around email security, and then very very quickly realized that Area One was not the right fit for Cloudflare. And before we get to, from Oren's side of point of view, like what happened, I just want to ask, so you mentioned the team had some knowledge prior of email security, had some experience with it. You also had some conviction around there was something to be done in this area. How do you think about that buy versus build decision, right? So you're talking to area one, that's great. Or even before you're talking to area one, right? But like, you also clearly have some folks that maybe had dabbled in the space before or done something in the space before, like, okay, let's staff up a team and go after it. How do you think about those things? It's a good question. I think there are certain capabilities that we felt like a, a really solid email security provider could offer that we just didn't have internally. So one of the examples I think of is Cloudflare serves a significant chunk of the world's internet traffic. So we, we do see a lot, but that said, there also isn't necessarily a ton of expertise specifically around email and understanding that kind of attack chain and knowing what to do with that data, particularly around email. There's a bit of a source skills gap. And then there's also just for coming like Cloudflare because we have a pretty wide range of different kinds of products. Our teams run fairly lean also. And so there's a, just a bit of prioritization around, okay, we already are building all these things. We're trying to build a bunch of new products that are media adjacencies to what we're doing. And so how do we how do we make sure we don't distract the teams and have everything great that's going on already, but also still find a way to, to capture this opportunity? I think one thing I'll mention also that we'll probably talk about diligence later on, but one of the things that just really helped early on is Cloudflare was actually a, a customer of Area One for about a year, year and a half at that point. It was, it was the first time we actually bought an, uh, an email security product for the company. And so it's just like an incredible amount of credibility internally, whether it's the threat intel team and just knowing that this team could come here and build a lot of amazing stuff beyond what they're doing today. Like that made the process go really smoothly, at least internally from day one. Got it. That's a pretty cool story about being a customer first and then going through with the acquisition. But Oren, so we've been talking about, I mean, we've been mentioning Area 1 security, but let's actually talk about like, what does Area 1 security actually do? So Area 1, well, it still continues to do this right now as part of Cloudflare, but Area 1 stops phishing attacks. And as I mentioned, you know, a phishing attack is just an attempt to get a human like the three of us to 
click on a link, download a file, or increasingly just take an action, right? Sometimes they come over SMS, sometimes it comes through email, sometimes it comes through like redirecting someone on the web. You know, these attacks are like, send me money or just send me the files. They don't have links or files attached to them. And they're responsible for, you know, over 95% of the damages. So what, what we set out to do is kind of use our experience having been the computer hackers and doing really massive scale data compute to kind of go after it. And so we build a series of technologies that, it's like big sensor array allow us to kind of detect what's the infrastructure being used by the attackers or bad guys, for lack of a better term, and then build the technical controls, email gateway or cloud email, like, you know, security solution, DNS filtering and so forth. So that when a user or when a network is intersecting with the attack, you can shut it down. Right. So from my experience or like the, I guess the orientation I have to the world, if you can't do anything to make it better, for the end user, for the customer, then you haven't really done your job. And so there's a critical part in knowing where the attacks are, being able to identify them with high precision, and then being able to actually stop them. And so that's what we do. When you started the company, you know, there were existing products that were out there, right, already. I mean, <laughs> I think I think it depends on, on what you call the efficacy of those products, right? But there were products like the Proofpoints, the, the Mimecast, the whatevers of the world that had existed for a while were large companies. And all of a sudden, you're coming in saying, there's something wrong with the way that they're approaching it. And we think we have found you know a way to address the pain point better. Like, What was that specifically that got you conviction that like, hey, we can build something and solve the need for enterprises, even though there's these massive companies are already out there growing very fast and executing well. well I'm probably going to embarrass myself, but when I started the company, I didn't know that those companies existed. And as I, I just knew that this problem existed. But actually, if you study it and you think about it, it wasn't hard to understand why the gap existed. And that's because Ironport, which Cisco acquired, Proofpoint, Mimecast, all of those players were built to solve an email spam problem. There was a time when Microsoft Exchange didn't have any sort of spam filtering capabilities and the amount of pornography and junk and stuff that landed in people's inbox basically was crippling to productivity. So that's why those companies existed, right? And over the years, they've added things, you know, on top. But also over the years, the way networking works and, you know, having boxes to virtualize boxes to purely cloud-based solutions has changed as well. And the combination of those two things really creates the gap. And so when I first started the company, people looked to me like cross-eyed, but actually post Area One, there are like a dozen, you know, <laughs> you know, email security companies. And it's super interesting to me that people thought the idea was sort of strange at the time. But I think you, when you see that across technology all the time, which is like, look, companies are built to do a thing. And sometimes they're built in a technological fashion that as you're trying to expand or as you're trying to do new things, it's very limiting. So just taking physical boxes and then virtualizing them doesn't allow you to do the large scale computing that's required to make the detections at the rates that we wanted to be able to do it. And so, you know, that was sort of the initial formation, you know, of it. Yeah. And before we like actually jump into the M&A process, I have one final question for you on area one, which is, you know, you guys were doing a lot of computer vision and just mm -hmm. very advanced AI and things like that in terms of processing the data. Now LLMs come about, right? And that's the buzzword du jour and everyone's talking about it, right? Do you think that would have changed anything about the way you would have built the company if we had had those models accessible earlier on or would that not have affected things? 
No, it doesn't have any impact on what we do. So I'll try to explain it to you succinctly. So it's kind of what I mentioned with the missiles before, which is that the hardest thing in life to do is to pretend to be normal, right? I often try every day to pretend to be normal, but it's very, very difficult for me to do. And what you find, cyber attacks really come down to one thing, which is authenticity. And so the attackers are trying to be authentic. Sometimes they're trying to be visually authentic in phishing, like it looks like it came from Bank of America, it looks like it came from Google or PayPal. We do reports that show like the top 64 thematic phishing attacks match perfectly to the top 64 largest brands It changes regionally or internationally in some way. The other form of authenticity is organizational. Sometimes it looks like it's from your CEO or from your CFO or so forth. So what you find is that like when you start using these types of models, right, you still need a person to click or you still need them to do something. It becomes more obvious over time. If I can, I can give you kind of a fun example from my time at the NSA. So we were monitoring a group of bad guys. I won't give too many specifics, but they thought the NSA had really good voice recognition capabilities, which perhaps we did not actually have that good of a capability. And so what they decided to do was to stick like a voice modulator onto their phone. So there's a twofold problem for them. One, they're the only like 11 guys on planet Earth who sound like Donald Duck over the phone. And the second is none of them know who each other are. So they're doing things like saying like, I'm the guy with the glasses or I'm the guy with the red beard or I'm this or, you know, something to that effect. And so LLMs actually fall into this principle, which is like actually like the more kind of generic and like the more you try to like force yourself into it while deceiving maybe to you and me as we're reading, you say, oh, that looks pretty good. Actually, for the types of things we're looking at, you can say, oh, this is like not what it is. And attackers have been doing that forever. They've been often taking Shakespeare, putting it in white text, attaching it to the bottom of an email to defeat, you know, spam filters and so forth. So, you know, we don't see much of that as as an impact. That's no, that is a hilarious example. And so thank you for <laughs> it's a true for example. Yeah. That's that's amazing. <laughs> um, well, so Mia, let's talk about the first call. You get in touch with Area One. Well, even first, I guess. Well, I think it's important to know, like, you know, me and I had started to know each other over some years. As she mentioned, Cloudflare had been a customer of ours. We're really proud of that. We were talking about doing different sort of partnership things and so forth. And so I think there was some general understanding and appreciation for the work that Cloudflare did, but also like, we really like the people. And so it was always easy to talk, you know, with them. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. Like, it sounds like Nia, you already kind of were aware of area one since you were using the product, right? So it's not like one of those things where it's just like, oh, this is a first call that I'm just doing from scratch, but just talk about like that first call when you actually do do it, right? What goes through your mind? Like what's happening? Are you immediately like, are you already thinking in your mind, Hey, this might be an acquisition thing, or is it just sort of like, let me go and explore what's going on? There's a couple ways to think about this. Like the, I don't know if ideal is the right word, but one path is there'll be companies like Area One and where we'll have been building a relationship with them through different parts of the Cloudflare team. So my team or security team, a bunch of other teams. And then you build that relationship over time. And then the the sort of first quote unquote official like M&A call doesn't feel as much like a a first call, right? And that's like the kind of ideal way to, to go into these things. In other cases where, similar to you, Shomik, I spent a lot of time meeting brand new companies. And a lot of times in the first call, it's just sort of getting, she oftentimes is sort of parsing through the marketing website and understanding what they really do, getting a sense for, you know, the founders and the kind of business they're building and the technology, and then also understanding what what their sort of ambitions are. And a lot of the, the end goal is of that is to sort of get an indication of a couple of things. One is understand the product and technology, like, is this real? Which 
you might think it's like not a question you'd have to figure out going go to a lot of these meetings, especially with there are lots of well-funded startups out there. And sometimes think you don't need to suss that out, but uh, you do. The other piece of it is just getting an early feel for just the culture. And I, I think culture is sort of this like weird term that comes up in m and When you think about m and people traditionally think of it as like a very, you know, buttoned up, like businessy kind of process, lots of former bankers and consultants involved. But the culture element, particularly for an acquirer like Cloudflare, where we're building really quickly our culture, and maybe Oren can share a little bit about what his impression of our culture was, but it, it's something that I think is very specific to Cloudflare in, in some ways. And so just sort of sussing that out and getting a feel for, okay, do we sort of approach problems in, in kind of a similar way? Do we, are we kind of all ambitious and looking to solve these big, hairy technical challenges? And a lot of the questions we try to ask are just understanding their view of the market, what their differentiators are. We're looking at expanding our products that are entering some sort of new market. The teams that you bring in, you want them to be experts in, in the space, right? To have like a really solid, honest view of the market and, and maybe where some of their gaps are. And understanding the gaps also is where we can figure out, okay, is there something about Cloudflare that we can help solve some of the problems that the potential company requires is facing, right? Is there something about Cloudflare that we can help accelerate what they're doing and, and sort of supercharge them? So it's, I know I touched on a lot of things and we usually try to get through all of that in, in about half an hour. But usually I think like if I'm being super tactical about it, we spend... I don't know, 10 minutes where the company is just sort of giving the background and the history on why they started the business, where they are today, the types of customers they serve, the use cases. And then a lot of the time is double clicking on the product. If there's room to, to do a quick demo, that's always really helpful just to see it in action and then really just understand their ambitions and figuring out if there is some sort of next step that makes sense, whether it's maybe a partnership or maybe we keep in touch. So Oren, from your perspective, like when did you kind of know that Mio was like, there's something here, like, you know, let's explore it further. Like, was it after the first call? Was it after the second call? Was it the third call? Like, you know, where was it in, in your mind? I think as an entrepreneur, you know, the glass isn't half empty or half full. It's overflowing with optimism. And I think when you're dealing with folks with funny titles, like special projects, you don't really know what's going on a little bit. So I'd say probably till they gave us the LOI, we really didn't, <laughs> we maybe really didn't know, but we really liked the company. I think initially we were really excited to be talking with Cloudflare because we thought that there was maybe like a distribution or a partnership opportunity, like at a minimum. And that's really exciting. Our team is very mission focused and the people, you know, I surround myself with or like build around are really focused on solving problems. So it's almost shocking to me to hear that like you would dig into a company like the product doesn't do what they say it does, right? Like, and perhaps that's why it was a little persnickety at some of the diligence questions because we were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, it just does like the thing that we actually says it does. It's a great compliment most of our customers give us. So the point I was trying to make was that we really liked the people a lot and we really felt like there was like a one plus one is three. It wasn't clear to me that what that might be, but we wanted there to be something, whether it's partnership. It fortunately turned out to be really good acquisition opportunity. But what I would do is I would go back and tell the executive teams and tell the board of directors and say like, look, I think there's something really unique about the people here. And that's why we should be pursuing this beyond the sort of core brass tacks of the business. There's something we're going to really like working with them. And that sort of got everyone on our side of line to, you know, open up their kimono a little bit, not be defensive and kind of just go for it. That makes sense. I will add, actually, if I think about the first, it's hard to count the conversations that Warren and I had because there were a bunch of them over, over the years. And in every conversation with Area One in the early days, we've 
first one was just me and Oren, and then we immediately did a demo and brought in a couple of people from our teams. And one of them, our CTO actually pinged me during Oren's demo. I don't think Oren, I ever told you this. He, he pinged me during our demo. He's like, these guys are the real deal, oh, which so is like, yeah, yeah the, the biggest like stamp of yeah. I feel like you're you're holding your breath. Yeah, <laughs> this is the real deal. Is is considered high praise? <laughs> I alluded to it just just a little bit. Like, I had a customer come to me, a Fortune 500, Fortune 10 company, say your product works exactly the way you said it did. And at first, I thought that was a little strange. Like it was a little backhanded. But you know, I think that's the reality out there. That like not all products work exactly the way you say they do because there's there's a lot of hype. And so it's really nice to hear my proudest moment through the acquisition. Not to skip ahead on it too is when when it was announced. Matthew, the CEO and the chief security officer, they wrote a blog post. And basically, it was just like the summary of it is like prior to installing the product, they were getting a lot of alerts and so forth, and they went away. And Matthew was kind of complaining, saying, hey, like, I'm not getting the alerts anymore. He says, no, we have this new product and it works, right? And to me, that's like the greatest compliment as a technology person, as an entrepreneur, is that like, the product does the thing. And so it's nice to hear that you guys felt that way. He was convinced that the product, like that it wasn't installed or like it was turned off or like something. It was like, there's no way this is working as well as it actually is, which is awesome. I guess two questions. One. You had the demo, right? You guys are a customer of Area 1 already. At the same time, like there's other companies out there, right? Do you then go and say, okay, well, now let me go and check out some other companies, right, too, just to make sure? <laughs> like, Were you, you sliding know? into the DMs of other companies? <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you, but, but do you do that or do you just say, okay, no, we're, we're excited about this product and let's jump in? You could even just say specifically for Area 1 if you'd like. But then separately, like what happens then, right? Like, so the CTO says, hey, this is the real deal. And then, like, what's going on behind the scenes? So, to your first question, with the Area 1 case, because we had this sort of long-running hunch that we would do something in email, just over time, I had met a couple of other email security businesses. We already knew a bunch of the companies and had a sense for why some of them, most of them might not be a good fit for Cloudflare. And so it was pretty easy, like once we met Area 1, to be like, okay, this is the right fit. If I take a more sort of general view on this, the sourcing and how do we think about M&A priors and all that, when there is something that's sort of more structured, if there's like a specific gap that we want to go solve and then we go and meet a bunch of companies, sometimes we'll do that. But other times, like we just might opportunistically meet a company that happens to be a really great fit. There's amount of diligence we try to do. Like there's been times where we met a company that's really great, but maybe we haven't met their five other competitors. And then we'll, we'll try to quickly just meet them and get an understanding of their product and really be able to kind of compare and articulate why one is a good fit for us and the others aren't. I think some of that is just part of responsible M&A and, and sort of diligence on the front end. And then to your question on, on sort of what happened after the, this is the real deal message. In general, we try to make sure that we do what we say and say what we do, I guess. We try to just be really honest and not waste people's time, particularly not not waste, you know, Orin, his team's time. And so, you know, I think for us, luckily with Area 1, we knew pretty quickly this would be a good fit for us. And then on the back end, we try to pull together a kind of core due diligence team. And some of that takes a couple of days to get together, right? Because you're pulling people from who, who have real day jobs and responsibilities and adding something to their plate that it might take a bunch of hours of their time for the next few months, or it might be a week and then you know we decide it doesn't work for us for whatever reason. And so we, we try to pull together a kind of core diligence team. And so people who for us, kind of in the, the early phases or pre, pre-LOI, pre-offer stage, a lot of what we focus on is trying to really understand the product and the technology. And so we spent a little bit of time with our security team who are the buyers of the Area 1 product and kind of understanding why they picked them, 
who else they looked at, and then staffing up the sort of right team on the the less like sexy and exciting stuff around legal, tax, finance, people, HR, IT, all of that. Export controls. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I'm sure we had some kind of like <laughs> export question on some due diligence request at some point. And then also starting to involve our commercial teams. And so I think with all these teams, you can probably picture pretty easily why it's dangerous sometimes to distract them, right? Like if I think about our sales organization, they have literal dollars that they need to go find. And so a lot of it's just pulling together the right team. And then we usually set up a few different types of deep dives. And it, it, some of this is going to be different depending on the type of company we're acquiring and maybe the size and stage and maturity of the companies for We've acquired a few very early stage companies and those we can have the tax legal fine. So that's going to be pretty straightforward because so you spend a lot of the time just really getting to know the team and the product. And then we try just quickly to, to get to some sense of evaluation. So at the end of the day, like the dollar number is a very real thing. And we want to make sure that we're at least in kind of the same ballpark and aligned with the target. And then at some point we draft up a formal-ish letter that we deliver and that's where the fun starts. Well, Oren, like throughout that process, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. One, just even from a scheduling perspective, you know, Mia's like saying, hey, we have to get these different folks. We have to pull them away from their teams, but you can't see any of that, right? You sent an email, Mia sent something back saying like, hey, listen, you know, let's schedule a session deep dive into this, right? And then you're kind of waiting for like, what is that session going to happen, right? So like, is there any point in time throughout this process where it's like, where you feel like you can push things forward or is it mostly like you're receiving or you're waiting for instructions? Like, how did that dynamic play out for you? I didn't feel that there was a real need to push. And, you know, I felt like Cloudflare was particularly like transparent with us. You know, I feel like there's a lot of like pacing around the office, like on eggshells, like kind of like, you know, what's going on. I mean, I can remember where I was like every interval of this when Mia called me to tell me like they wanted to kind of like really maybe get serious. Like I was on this like bachelor party with a bunch of FBI friends of mine in Louisville. And I was telling them like, you guys need to go away. Like, and I'm housed up in this like Airbnb room in like the corner. And there's another time I almost got in a fatal accident and, you know, San Diego. And so, you know, Mia knows all this stuff, but um, I think we are just trying to move our business forward. I think really the tricky part from the company perspective, from the founder perspective, and is that we are always raising money, trying to like build a company, move it forward. We're still doing our customer thing. Pulling people on our team is not as complex as it is from the Cloudflare side, right? Because that's kind of like what our guys are doing every day. They're doing customer calls in some ways, you know. We went through a lot of sort of exploratory conversations with large companies, you know, about this type of thing. We just treated them all like customer conversations, like, please use our product. Like, you know, we'd love for you to test it out and then kind of go from there. So what's really tricky about it is this sort of fundraising and then communicating to the board and to the, the startups, the board, mostly investors, right, kind of communicating to them because I think entrepreneurs have that over-optimism phenomenon. And I think boards feel like you're kind of making it up that maybe there's interest because they're not involved in the conversations. And so there's two problems with this. Until one, you can really formalize with an LOI, no one really takes it seriously. Like they're kind of like, yeah, okay, kid, like great, sort of. And then, but on the same time, you can't just like slap a term sheet down on the table and be like, see, I told you so, right? So we're carefully sort of talking about it and even trying to position what we thought the benefits of such a potential acquisition might be so that it wasn't like out of the blue, like that, you know, 
I just went rogue, brought in an acquire, and people are like, what are you talking about, right? And then I think the price is where it gets like really interesting because that's where everyone has an opinion. Well, that's where uh, that's where I want to. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about that. Like, that's where everyone has an opinion, and you're just like, you know. So, <laughs> so the LOI, you're doing all this work, right, Mia? You're doing all this work to put something down, or and you're communicating with everybody, trying to say, hey, things are happening. Boom, the LOI lands. You finally have visualized the price. Well, the conference team was a little bit more Japanese in their style because they sort of did like a pre-LOI, right? They did the pre-meeting meeting, right? They kind of like socialized the concept uh, <laughs> with me. And this is while I was in a tow truck in San Diego, you know, taking this call. Again, it's like so important. The guy towing my car is like, what are you doing? I'm like, you need to be quiet. Like, this is really critical, you know, <laughs> to me. And um, so, you know, what they initially did was they kind of like scheduled this call and they were like, hey, look, this is kind of what we're thinking. And new people showed up onto the call. I think Alex Steiner showed up. I hadn't met him before. And you're like, who is this person? And he has a equally sort of stealthy title, right? And you have a serious <laughs> title, right? So like, who is this person? Very lovely, you know, actually, you know, super great human being, but they sort of socialize it. And, you know, I just had to say like, I need you to just put it in writing, right? Because of that dynamic I was explaining to you, like, I need to be able to have this conversation until it's actually formalized, right? In some sort of a letter. I'm starting to get like more stuck, probably in a way that like Cloud4 is moving forward in aggressive rate. Like we started to become on the other side of it, like until this happens, we don't know what, what to do. So Mia, maybe first, how do you arrive at the valuation? Because you can obviously do multiples and calculation, but there's also things, frankly, like you say, one plus one equals three. And so there's the dynamic of like, you want the board to be excited about this, to say, hey, listen, if area one is within Cloudflare, we're going to be able to accelerate the crap out of this thing. And it's going to be amazing. So how do you think about arriving at that price? And then like, let's get to the juicy stuff of now, how do you actually negotiate the price once a range has been put into, into play? When it's a private company, you look at a bunch of different things. The sort of more analytical pieces are sort of the usual stuff you'll always at least look at. And, and then you can decide if you throw it out or not. But the things you'll, you'll always, the homework you'll always do is just looking at, okay, were there past deals that are kind of similar in this space? What did those sell at? And then the kinds of multiples and prices those sold for relative to how much revenue those companies were doing. You'll look at maybe where the funding history looks like for the company in terms of prior valuations and does it make sense for them to be for us to pay something higher or lower, you know, about the same as, as where they last raised at? But at the end of the day, it's sort of like, okay, for us, if we did bring on area one, which would add a, a new product set to us that we thought was without overusing the word synergy, I guess, but like just a really close adjacency to everything Cloudflare already does. This was a product that we thought we can sell to, you know, as a company, we have more than 160,000 customers and millions of, of other users. Like if we make Area 1 available and accessible to a pretty large chunk of the world's internet users, I guess, like what could that mean for us from a business and commercial perspective? So basically what you end up doing in like a very literal sense is you gather a bunch of these data points, you have a sort of range, and then you just figure out like what really makes sense for us, what's fair. And we think about fair for us because we... This was an acquisition where we really, really valued the Area 1 team and wanted them to be excited to come to Cloudflare and hopefully have, hopefully Lauren will be here forever. We want to make sure we, we did the right thing for the team, for the investors, but also for the team. That was, at the end of the day, like the folks we would be hopefully working with for a lot longer after the deal closes. And one quick question before we get into the negotiation side, but it's like, we all know Area 1's customers, right? It was blue chip customers that I assume 
either one, maybe Cloudflare already had a relationship with some of them, or I imagine also there's some that it's like, hey, this is a new customer we're really trying to get into. This is a way for us to use the area one relationship to then go and expand our portfolio within that customer. Does that sort of analysis also come into bear or is it more, I guess, how do you weight different things? There isn't one consistent formula, I'd say. I think for something like email security that we felt was a pretty close adjacency to everything we were already doing, at some point later on in the process, we, we looked at the customer overlap and that kind of helped refine our view. More so, I mean, at that point, we, we already kind of got to the internal view that, that we wanted to move forward, but it helped us sort of inform the, the integration strategy and how to prioritize different types of accounts, where there are ready relationships that maybe we we have other products that customer might care about and maybe area one can help us get a foot in the door there. So it's definitely a factor. It also depends on the type of product and technology that, that you're buying. That makes sense. So Oren, you see the piece of papers in front of you, right? It has a range or number on it. So now you finally get to have this tangible discussion with the board. One, first of all, like what's going on, right? How do you even have that conversation? What advice do you have for founders who are going through that conversation? And then two, then how do you start the negotiation if you want to increase the price or if you want to change the stock to equity mix or whatever, right? How do you kind of go through all those iterations? First, I would say like, I was really like humbled to even like get the paper, you know, it was like a really sort of emotional experience. Like I felt like really proud of the team. I actually like feel really proud about it, just thinking about it right now. So it was like really exciting to say the least, because you you just have to imagine, I guess there's lots of different reasons why people start companies, right? Maybe some to make money, but the guys I work with, like just really want to solve a problem. And they felt like this was a really a good validation of that work. Like three guys were like, you know, it'd be a great idea to turn our expertise sending porn to people to like protect people. And now one of the largest companies, you know, in the world is like really interested in even expanding that further. So it's like really exciting. I still don't know what like the range was. So we could never get like a straight answer. Like what's the point of a range? Like, you know, like, cause again, to my glass half empties, like I only see the top end of the range. And I told Alex <laughs> and me, like, I just see that the top number, like, I don't even know at the bottom, the investors only saw the bottom number uh, part of it, but I would say, so everyone kind of sees it in different ways. I think that like almost all the advice that you get about negotiating is totally wrong. And there's really no way around it. I think you just have to like try it, right. Or sort of like think through it. One of the things that we Oddly, like maybe even working against ourselves is like Clover is a tough negotiator, but actually our executive team, it built a lot of confidence. We actually appreciated that they like sort of stuck to their guns a little bit and our guys would be like, this is awesome. But, you know, look, I think like board members try to call the CEO, investors try to like work around on the sides. Like everyone's just trying to figure out like what's really going on. I've asked me over the last, you know, year, like, what would you really got to, <laughs> you know, like, you know, who knows, right? Like, would you have really gotten, you know, further or so forth? So I don't think there's a good way to do it. And across, you know, my friends who have gone through similar things, I don't think they all kind of like do the same stuff. So I think, you know, you just have to kind of work through it. But once the LOI was in front of us and we were able to discuss it through the board, you know, there was a seriousness of focus that hadn't been there on the prospect. They wanted to go run out and talk to a bunch of, you know, random other acquirers. Of course, like that never works because nobody wants to acquire a company at 48 hours notice, right? And so, you know, we just tried to gather as much information. What's the deal with the range? What about this? What about that? And, you know, we found the team outside of like what they would really get to, to be pretty transparent in terms of like what the fungible elements were. When I think back to the process, one of the things that made my life a lot easier and enjoyable is that you and the whole team were just really, really transparent from, from day one. I think we definitely tried to do the same thing. Maybe there were times where like, 
I probably said something that you're like, I, I don't know what she's really saying, but I feel like there's something there. But we, we usually try to be just really transparent, even when it comes to price or just like our intentions around how much we invest in the team and growing this business once they join. And we try to be really honest about that. And I, I try to tell founder friends who kind of go through a similar experience and they'll, they'll have this like just weird feeling, kind of gut feeling where the corporate development person they talk to is saying one thing and then either not following up or feels like they're kind of playing games. And I generally just tell them, like, just go with your gut. Like, there's usually a reason that they're either not being transparent or flip-flopping or hopefully they're not, like, outright lying. But <laughs> there are times where, like, I think internally within the acquirer, they might not be 100% sure that this is the right company or this is the right timing or whatever it is. And then you sort of, like, see that play out in kind of strange ways and I think just trust, trust that gut. Founders know this through maybe their prior fundraising experience, right? There, there are oftentimes you'll go out and talk to a venture capital firm and the good ones run a tight process until you know very quickly, right? You know, everyone I know like loves those firms, even the ones that told them no. Plenty of people have said no to me over the years. It's kind of like the dilly-dallying in between where you like don't really know what's happening, where it becomes difficult. So I think the dynamic though here that's a little different is that when there's real money on the table and everyone, including like line engineer 39B, it can imagine like maybe the yacht that they think that they're not going to get, <laughs> then, you know, you see you see a different side of things and you just want to know that it's going to come through. And, and really the motivation on my side is I just really wanted to do right by the people that work for me and like the team that had been around for years. And so you're just like trying to figure out like, is this going to be good for them and their families and so forth? And, you know, fortunately, like the answer to that has been, you know, yes, yes, yes. So. Yeah. So acquisition gets announced, but even before that, I'm assuming like you can't tell customers yet, right? But like at the same time. Yeah, I got into a little bit of trouble about this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, the team's excited. <laughs> the yeah. team's pumped, right? The team's fired up. They're excited to do this, right? Everyone knows you're marching towards a closed date, all this sort of stuff. At the same time, you still got to go and operate the business because you've got the Fortune 500 company that needs their stuff protected, right? So how do you manage that? How do you communicate to folks? What even happens? Like when the acquisition happened, like was there a communication plan that you guys had set out or what all happened there? Well, one of our largest customers had partaken in the diligence process and he called me after it was announced. It was like, what the heck? You know, like, and I was like, oh, you know, uh, so, but, you know, he, was, he ended up being very nice about it. Uh, and so, you know, I understood. So, I mean, I think it is tricky. I mean, you know, like Mia said, I mean, their team was pulling people in sort of indoctrinating to them. We didn't have that many people to pull in. I mean, everyone knew it's, you know, it's a relatively small company, about a hundred people. So, I mean, everyone kind of knew what was happening. And so, you know, we just do what startups do, like just communicate with folks, talk to them about it. There were different parts of the signing and announcement process where we could do it. But there was a point where like I had forgotten who knew, who didn't know. It was a, it was a giant relief when it finally was sort of out. I think someone called me like the day before and was like, did it, did it close yet? And I was like, I don't know if you're supposed to know. So we have like 20 hours. So just shut up. <laughs> you know? Well, that was the funniest thing too. It was like, I wasn't sure what I could text Mia congratulations. So I was like in this weird thing where I feel like, <laughs> well, I've heard good things from Orin, but I, I don't know if I could call Mia. So like, I'm just going to like, just not do anything. Uh, but yeah, it's very <laughs> exciting. I mean, this is all happening during the pandemic. So we set up here for the, the local folks in Washington to see where I'm at to kind of get together. Nobody knew why we were at this bar. And some of the executive team had been flown to Austin 
for like sort of a one full day meet. And we had done some sort of like pre sort of like meetings to kind of figure things out. And so we had a lot of t-shirts, right. That they were giving us and stickers and so forth. And so Blake and I were wearing these like cloud floor t-shirts and like under our shirts. And then when it was announced, we were able to take off the shirts, but it's a lot for people to comprehend instantaneously. So it was exciting, but like, you know, people are like, wait, what, what does this mean? What does it mean for me? And so it was a good moment anyways. I think I still have that photo of, of you and Blake at a bar or restaurant with your Cloudflare shirts. I was like, this is, this is awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. And then actually leading up to the announcement, we did a bit of prep work on comms. I think depending on the, the specific situations in the acquire, yes, sometimes there, there's some acquires that are very much, they care a lot about sort of controlling every piece of the, the communications and the process and exercising the kind of leverage they have. We generally try to work with targets from pretty early on as if we're already colleagues and, and coworkers, right? And so that's true even when it comes to the comms aspect, both internally and externally. So we had worked with the Area 1 team to figure out how do we message this to the team. And then the day it was announced, we, we had an, an all hands with the Area 1 team scheduled and actually on the Cloudflare team as well, we had an email ready to go from our founders announcing it. And on the Area 1 all hands, we had a few people from Cloudflare join as well, mostly just to like join and, and tell everyone because I, I think the management team has spent a lot of time Probably more time than they would have liked, but a lot of time with us at, at that point and like knew how excited we were, but we realized that the rest of the team who maybe only had a hunch there's something funny going on, that they hadn't heard the sort of story from, from us about why we were so excited about everyone. So we made sure to have some folks from Cloudflare join just for a little bit, just to, to reiterate that story. I think there was a gap between when we announced and when we closed, right? Yeah. There was a little bit of a window there too. And that, that was interesting because there, you know, there are some like closing conditions. And I think, you know, companies who are being acquired should prepare, like, you know, you have to deliver the people, <laughs> you know, like you have to Moses them into Jordan properly. And I would say we didn't have any like real issues with that, but certainly there are conversations to have with folks about what does it mean? Who am I going to work for? Who am I going to report to? Especially when, as me was saying, we've done all this work to get happy with the number, to get happy with the potential, to give up the dream of raising a 20 billion at 1 trillion pre type of next round. And so that period is a lot of work. And I think we were able to do a balance of both to get to work right on the integration, but also make sure the team was able to be delivered into the promised land. How quickly after acquisition, though, can you truly start an integration? It's even just you got to get the folks on board onto payroll and benefits and all that sort of stuff. And then they have to figure out who they're reporting to and do one-on-ones. And you now got to explore code bases and see how those integrations would even work, right? There's so many steps. So it seems like it's not something you want to rush because that could frankly damage both companies, right? So is it something where it's like, hey, loosely, we have a roadmap of like three months out, we want to start doing X? Or is it more so like, hey, gut feel, we'll kind of know when it feels right? I think from a Cloudflare perspective, for us, what we tried to do is just figure out what day one would look like in terms of you know reporting structure. And a lot of where we actually landed was in some ways, like nothing is changing for the area one team. Like keep doing what you're doing. Like everything you're already doing is exactly why, why we wanted them to be a part of Cloudflare. And so keep doing that. And we had the whole team pretty much stay intact on day one. And then over time, we've integrated them into the existing Cloudflare functions. But we really prioritized just not breaking anything that was going really well with, with area one on day one. And then we tried to have a view on, okay, you know, 12 months out, here's roughly the, the kind of state we'd want to get to. And then you fill in the gap over time. I think 
one of the hard things, and, and Orr mentioned, like there, there's a bit of a window between when we announced the deal and when we closed it. And there are certain things like, especially for a public company, there are certain things you can and can't do in that time span, right? So there, there's a lot of planning you can do, but you can't necessarily actually pull the trigger on a lot of those plans until the deal closes. And there's still, theoretically, there's a risk that something could fall through before it closes. And so you can't operate as if you're already one company, right? And so there's some kind of artificial blockers, I guess, of how we can communicate with each other and the degree to which we can plan and execute some of the plans. But we, we tried to do what we can early on. And, and just the biggest thing for us was just making sure that the Area 1 team could keep doing what they were doing and, and that the folks felt like just a sense of maybe stability that this was going to be a place that they hopefully want to spend a good chunk of their career, the, the sort of next phase of their career. One of the things we had talked about was one of the folks on, on the Area 1 management team and a couple people on our team had been through acquisitions before where one example I think of is Dane Connect, who, who runs our emerging tech and incubation team. The company he was previously at was acquired and then day one, their coffee machine was replaced or like it was taken away. Like a bunch of these like small, really disruptive things. We were like, well, let's, just, let's not do any of that. Let's just like try to keep things really simple, allow people to keep operating the way they're operating now and like give them the sort of comfort and support. And then over time, really just have them feel like just any other Cloudflare employee to some degree, hopefully. Cloudflare, the really amazing thing about the company is they do almost all the little things, right? They're hard to like articulate, but you know, maybe like two weeks into post-closing, of one of my oldest colleagues and like one of our top engineers, he died, right? And he had throat cancer. It just it just sort of happened. And, you know, without missing a beat, like, you know, Matthew calls, we're going to accelerate a stock and stuff like that. And just from the get, you just see at everything from the onboarding to the HR integration to some of the thoughtfulness. So, you know, there's obviously little bumps, but the things that really matter to the people and wanting to like dedicate their time and do the work, those little things like they really, you know, do a great job. This is very easy for the folks to do it. I think the hardest thing on the integration for a certain level of like the management, you know, like myself and the co-founders and other executives is is dealing with a, it's like a public company, right? And all these windows and blackout periods, that's not something that we were familiar with at all. And still, I really have no idea, you know, about it. And so that's a little tricky sometimes to be thinking through because those implications are very serious, obviously for Cloudflare, for any publicly traded company. But when you're just like, every thought that pops into my head, putting on Twitter or just like whatever, as just like a, you know, <laughs> like a, you know, an entrepreneur, just like regular startup person to try to navigate some of that is interesting to be involved with. But one of the most re- kind of rewarding parts of it is when company holds its first earnings calls and they talk about it and they're talking about your thing and you're like, wow, like people are asking questions on the second earnings call post acquisition. Some banker is asking, what about this? What about that with your company? It's just really exciting. We're all texting each other like, wow, can you believe that? The analysts, you know, want to know these things. And so people are like really tuned in and I think it's very motivating to them to want to be part of this one plus one is three or really contribute, right? And the Cloudflare leadership has a couple of really interesting things sometimes they say. Sometimes they'll talk about how, I think I get this right, Mia, that Tim Cook joined Apple at the about the size that Cloudflare is now. Is that right? 
I've heard that. I have not fact-checked it. <laughs> I've heard that. It might not be true. This is a thing people are told. So I think like, you know, or it's a rumor that's going around somewhere on the interwebs. But like, there's a lot of potential, right? Like the dream isn't over for guys who are, you know, think they're joining a startup and like building something or, you know, a company has very ambitious goals, as Mia said, at, at the get-go. And so all of that combined just gives people a lot of confidence. So we've covered a lot of stuff from beginning till end and even post-integration for founders to make this go through as smoothly as possible, what would your one tip be? And I'm just going to make sure it's one. So it's got to be, you know, something that, you know, you think is pretty important. But Mia, I'm going to start with you. And I think, you know, you get to see it through the acquirer's lens, right? So maybe from the acquirer standpoint, what can founders do to make it go as smoothly as possible? To the extent you can, just be sort of transparent about what you want to do with the company and be honest with yourself of, okay, is this Cloudflare going to be a good home for you and, and the ambitions you have for the company and really try to challenge the acquiring team on those sort of things. And just be honest and transparent about that. And if there are things that I think just like over time of doing M&A, like each company has, and founders have their, some have like pretty specific, like surprising hangups that are really, really important to them that, like I would never know. And it's like really small things. Some of them are related to how the deal structured or like where they want to relocate to or like <laughs> specific language that they want to keep using. Or there's some like specific thing that people are, are really attached to. And I would encourage people to sort of share that early on and figure out like, is that something that, that's cool? Yeah, I try to do the same. Just we sort of glossed over this part, like between the LOI and when we announced the deal, there were about a month and a half, two months of really intense due diligence. I don't know how many documents Orin and his team ended up sharing with us, how many questions we asked. We ended up doing a code review, which I had a lot of those questions where Orin was like, I swear we do what we say we're doing. Like, I don't know how to show this to you, but it's not, it's not always like the most fun part of a process, but to the extent you can have your docs in a row around docs and making sure the company is built and set up in, in a way that's just sort of clean and simple and like obvious things like avoid litigation that's unnecessary when you can like try, try to just run your business responsibly and not have that sort of baggage it just makes makes the diligence process a lot smoother than it sometimes can be Orin, from your perspective actually the lens i would like you to answer this question would be someone who is interested or excited about the potential acquirer what would your recommendations be to make things go as smoothly as possible my advice to founders or entrepreneurs is to know why you started the company to begin with, right? And that will guide you through whatever the outcomes, you know, will be. I think, you know, if you don't have a good understanding of why it is you do what you do, why you get up every single day, then it's really hard to grapple with all the different choices you have to make through an acquisition or through building the company more generally. So I think if you're spending time contemplating why do I do this? Why do we start this company? What is it that we're really trying to accomplish? Then it's relatively straightforward to be able to go through a process like Mia led with me and get to an outcome that feels really satisfying and really sort of like humbling, as I mentioned. So some people start companies to make a lot of money and then the number is everything, right? Like, and that's okay, right? I mean, that's probably an okay thing. And there's some scenarios where that works and some people solve them for different reasons. And so the more in touch you are with that, I think the better it is generally and allows you to intuit or to interface through the process with the M&A folks. So I got to give you one little B-roll, which, you know, you can use it as you want, but this is like one of the funniest things. So after the closing, we had some sort of meeting in DC to like bring the technical teams together. 
And at like a sidebar, the Coffer folks were telling us how in the San Francisco office, their ground floor is the fourth floor and their top floor is the first floor because Matthew wanted the boardroom on the first floor to be 404. And, oh my God. <laughs> I, just, and I just said, this is the greatest <laughs> idea ever. Like what a great thing. And they all just looked at me like, you would think that as like the founder, like, you know, to yeah. restructure the building that way. I thought, oh, yeah. You know, so it's just hysterical to see everyone kind of be like, oh, yeah, no, you got to go to the second floor and it's really the third floor. And uh, so super funny. That is amazing. <laughs> so I think these quirks, right, like from my perspective, like they help kind of like motivate you through the day and they're kind of fun. They're sort of ingenuity, but like they have this whole life in the company that's like really hilarious to see when you bring two of these things together, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> you know, and then the guys are telling, they're saying all these weird <laughs> things that I would do. And I was like, you thought that was weird? I, I had no idea. I thought that was totally normal. So you're probably just like, these are my people. Yeah, I was like, these, these are my normal. people. Like, yeah, exactly. They renamed every floor to get this. <laughs> just to get more <laughs> My colleague, Ed, had this too with our last fundraise. So our fund six, six fund was $192,168,111, and which is the default router IP address. And <laughs> there's only a few people that that. actually picked up on that. Most of the VC community was just like, that's an oddly specific number. And then there was a certain few founders which were just like, oh my God, yes, this is amazing. Thank you. So those things matter to the culture. But me and Oren, thanks so much for doing this. How can people find you both if they'd like to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm at Oren Falkowitz on Twitter. Find me on all those social webs. I'm meowing with two underscores, I think. I think one underscore was, was taken. So I'm meowing two underscores on Twitter and just meowing at Cloudflare if you want email. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the time and looking forward to doing it again. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ovik. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.